monkeys were a band made for TV. But that didn't mean that they weren't real groovy. Hey, this was a thing covering the monkeys today. And we're really gonna praise them in our own special kind of way. We talked to monkeys this week on This Was a Thing. Get out all your tie-dye and paisley on your silk shirts. And, you know, all the fabrics that didn't breathe because that was the 60s. Wow! And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. That that was impressive. That was a, I wanted to give you a sultry reading. That was really, really good. So today, we're talking about America's favorite result of the British invasion. The Beatles. The monkeys. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm off. Yeah, America's. This I'm is, off. Yeah, I mean, I guess technically the Beatles would be the their favorite, but I, the monkeys I say are America's own boys. That's for right. The Amer- America's entry into the Eurovision thing that is the British invasion. God that is damn. Do I love Eurovision? The Beatles and Rolling Stones. Ooh. Ooh. Now this was a thing because back in the '60s, at the height of Beatlemania, two up-and-coming TV producers trying to create, you know, something that would stick as up-and-coming producers do i'm not talking well anyway fred silverman yeah oh my god yeah you know they saw the movies that the beatles were putting out at that time and those movies were huge and they thought themselves they probably thought i mean this is an actual quote but i can imagine this actually (laughs) but they they thought to themselves probably hey we should do that but for TV. I think that is a ver- exact quote. I, that's that's why I feel comfortable saying it, but I did want to preface it. And from that possible quote of theirs that po- probably got said, <laughs> the bands known as the Monkees came into fruition. Now, the band was cast, the songs were recorded and released, the TV show aired, and then all of a sudden, like an advanced AI outsmarting the computer operator... The band wanted to be an actual band. What? Now, I first discovered the Monkees, thanks to how I discovered most classic television. And I discovered the Monkees as a TV show before a ba- as a band. Yeah. Nick at Night. Oh, same. Just like they do now with shows like Friends and Everybody Loves Raymond. Nick at Night used to play shows from two or three decades ago. Uh-huh. How about that for aging us, Rob? Holy shit. Because I was thinking about it because... I've always been like, have you seen what's on Nick at Night now? I mean, like, it's Friends. I mean, I grew up watching Friends. But when yeah. Nick at Night was like when we were growing up, that was the stuff our parents grew up with. Yeah. I remember the monkeys, though, like on OG Nick at Night, like in the, in the late 80s. That's how, that's how I first encountered them. I discovered in the 90s. I didn't, I didn't watch then, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure they were on back then. But in the summer, 
they would do marathons. Now, every day would have a certain I remember this. And every summer, I was always so excited for Mondays. You know what Mondays were? Monkey Mondays. Munster Mondays. What the? Where is the story going? It was always Munster Mondays until one summer. Oh, no. One summer, they go, and this summer... It's going to be Monkey Mondays. Oh. I got hooked. Because around this time, I was going through my own personal Beatle mania, and I was obsessed with the Beatles. Okay. And I just, you know, as much as a kid could, I was taking in as much Beatles information and music. I mean, I just, I still love the Beatles. I love them so much, I don't even count them as a top five band because it's just obvious to me. So it was essentially, oh, wait, look at it. It's like the Beatles, but their TV show is very kind of ahead of its time now, but it's goofy. They act silly. You know, bands have nicknames. The Monkees' nickname was the Prefab Four. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know, like the Beatles were the Fab Four. The Monkees were the Prefab Four. The Monkees, prefabricated or not, as a band, sold over 50 million records. Ooh. And the show ended up winning two Emmys in just two seasons on air. In 1967, it won Outstanding Comedy Series. And it also won Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Comedy for James Frawley. So you don't sell 50 million records without having hits. You know, you got to have a hit song. Those hit songs help people go, hey, let me hear more songs that might be like that song that I like. This is why we don't have solo careers. Absolutely not. <laughs> Hard but, first. But our Billy Reese, our composer. Hey, Billy's doing great. Killing it. But one of these songs has stood the test of time, in my opinion, because I feel like it's a song that... If, if you take in media at all in any way, I'd say of those people, probably 90% of those people have heard this song at one time or another. And then I saw her face. I'm a believer. So, like I always do, I always like to present listeners with a timeline. I was able to piece together this timeline thanks to the help of uh, two, two really good articles amongst others, but uh, from Grunge, The Monkey's Tragic Real-Life Story. Ooh. Spoiler alert, there's some sadness. Oh, no. Now, that's, that, that, that's, that's my own pair. That's my own, like, parentheses. That's, but anyway, that was written by Becky Robbins. Thank you, Becky. Now, the other one is Vanity Fair, the most influential pop rock band ever. The Monkees by Mark Rozo. Another article I used was Mental Floss, 11 Things You Might Not Know About the Monkees by Serene Leeds. I've always said a leader, not a follower. <laughs> huh? Serena Leeds. You want to talk about the Monkees? Yeah, I'm, I'm down. So, yeah, okay. The idea of the Monkees goes back to 1962. It uh, was a great year. Now, Bob Raffleson, uh, he was a young filmmaker, and, you know, he thought it would be a you know, a pretty decent idea to just capitalize on those poppy boy bands. Now, he tried to sell the idea, but it just didn't get picked up. Now, a few years go by, you know, and I feel like in the 60s, at least in the realm of music, there was so much crazy music going on. I don't know. But just in thinking in the, the grand scheme of music, pop music in the 60s, Holy shit. But uh, a few years go by and the Beatles are huge. You know, like it wasn't just like, oh, look at these cute guys. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, Hard Day's Night, 
help those two films only help make them bigger and go into the, like the mainstream's public consciousness. Now Bob Raffleson felt like it was time to go dust off that idea that he'd come up with. And luck would have it that the uh he sold the idea to Screen Gym. Which was what? Like a studio? It was or like something? a you know like a production company. A production company. Uh, in, in April 1965 uh and by this time he'd also partnered with someone named Bert. Can you guess the last name? Bert Ward. Nope. Bert and Ernie. Nope. Bert Lancaster. Nope. It's a really good, solid last name that you would really like. Bert Heavy. No. Bert Big Dick. No. Bert. Bert uh, Schneider. Bert Schneider. Bert Schneider. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, Bob initially uh, wanted to use the then unknown band, the Lovin' Spoonful. They had already signed a record contract, you know, so they were unavailable. So they need to make. A show about a band. Okay. But the band they wanted wasn't available. So what would be the next logical step? Create a band. Turn to Broadway. Okay, Davey I was so wrong. Yeah, but I mean, come on. I mean, let's I be honest. Wrong. When Cheyenne Jackson filled in for Judas Priest, that was fucking dope. So they get it. I would do that. Now, Davy Jones was a 19-year-old up-and-coming Broadway star. Now, he was nominated for a Tony, like I said, in 63 for playing Dodger in the musical Oliver. Uh, Where is love? One thing about Davy Jones is that, you know, he was already nominated for a Tony, but he was also happened to be signed to Screen Gems. Oh. So he released some singles under the Screen Gems uh, Coal Picks Records. Which I think was also a toothpaste company. Great, fantastic. So Davy, yeah, they got Davy. He still had to uh, win over the show's creators, but he was announced, uh, you know, to be in a new Screen Gems pilot, July 1965. So you know, the train was rolling. Now it took a couple of months, but in September of that year, now the Hollywood Reporter and Variety ran the following ad: "Madness!" Exclamation! Exclamation! Auditions. Period. Folk and rock musician singers for acting roles in new TV series, period. Running parts for four insane boys aged 17 to 21, period. Want spirited Ben Franks types? Have courage to work. Must come down for interview. And it was line by line by line. Ben's Franks? Ben Frank types, yes. Well, I thought you might ask about that. Now, Ben Franks was a popular uh, restaurant on the Sunset Strip where, quote, the mods mused over burgers and fries. That's so interesting. Yeah. The ad, I guess, also had a line that said, must come down for interview. And I guess Bob Raffleson said uh, in the book Monkey Business, that was a sly reference to being high. Quote. Is that true? Yeah. Well, must come down. Must come. Oh, know, like I'm Yeah. Com- what a time to be alive, huh? Now, 437 people auditioned. After it was all said and done, you know, Davy Jones would have the rest of his castmates. All right, let's get into it. You ready? I'm ready. Mickey Dolenz. Hey, Mickey. Didn't see the ad. You're so fine. He didn't even see the ad. The ad they did. How'd he get in then? Well, he found out f- about the gig from his agent. Oh. See, Mickey already had an agent because he'd come from an entertainment background. Both his parents were actors. Mickey Dolenz starred in an NBC series when he was a child from 1958 to 1960 in the title role, it was called Circus Boy. What? Circus Boy. And let me just give you the basic plot of Circus Boy. Corky's parents die in a trapeze accident. <laughs> Corky gets adopted by Joey the Clown, 
Corky like then works at the circus. This is literally a horror story. Yeah. Okay, so he's a television so, star. He's a circus boy. Yeah, and he was able to play guitar at the time of getting cast, and he was able to get a private audition because of his strong resume. Now, okay, let's go into Mike Nesmith. Now, Mike was the only one of the three that got cast that actually saw the ad. <laughs> so so they, they did the ad. Two of the three people got cast, didn't see the ad. Mike Nesmith, he'd been working as a musician for a few years under different names, you know, as you do. He had a folk rock group called The Survivors, and uh, he recorded for Screen Gems, Cole Picks Records. He studied drama in college, so, you know, he had that going for him. But he was also a skilled guitarist, and he also was able to play the bass. So, you know, cool. Mm. They're casting people, you know, play, play instruments. The final monkey that was cast, if I were to give you a, you know, like a car, let's say like a car has... You know, when it needs to go fast, what does a car need? A muffler. Uh, yep, that's a, right. A Peter torque. Muffler was the last to a be torque. cast. Oh, Peter Tork. Oh! Now, Peter Tork was the last to be cast. Now, he'd been playing folk music in Greenwich Village at the height of the scene. So, you know, folk in the 60s was uh, pretty big. Now, the auditions uh, have been described as, quote, off the wall. Oh, tell me why. Now, Schneider and Raffleson apparently did things just to see how the uh, applicants would react. Oh, no, would I react. Like this. <laughs> Mike Nesmith came into the audition with a bag of his laundry because I guess he was afraid uh, to leave it in his car. And uh, Peter Tork uh, had the seat pulled uh, from underneath him by Schneider. All Schneiders are goofy guys. I guess. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. So the show about a band had their cast, but a show about a band needed music, or it wasn't a show about a band at all, really. Now, enter Don Kirshner. Now, Don Kirshner was Screen Gems' head of music. Uh, Time Magazine gave Don Kirshner the nickname, The Man with the Golden Ear. He was responsible for discovering Bobby Darin, Tony Orlando, Neil Diamond. The, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, this guy really did have a very influential yeah. music career. Now, he'd been involved in the music publishing industry since the late 50s, early 60s. His company, Alden Music, employed at various times, not at once, but uh, the likes of Carole King, Neil Sedaka, Paul Simon. Again, the list goes on and on. Like, this dude knew how to get people together that had success. He had a ton of hits during the, quote, bubblegum pop era. And with all these Brits invading, I think it was time to switch from bubblegum to beans and toast. We're talking about British Invasion. You know, who is better to write British Invasion-inspired songs than Tommy Boyce of Virginia and Bobby Hart of Arizona? London Bridge is in Arizona. Yeah. Just putting that out there. I know. I know. It was a gift. But now they'd written songs that were recorded by people like Chubby Checker, Paul Revere, and the Raiders. So we got the band cast. We got the car with torque. We got Messmith with all that green in the bank and white on the paper. And, uh, you know, we got Circus Boy cleaning up the cages. <laughs> now, anyway, and Davy Jones is just riding like a king with his Tony nomination. Okay, Davy. So it's time to get the pilot going. And this is 65? Yes, yeah, 65 still. Now, it was time to figure out, you know, when the pilot's going, okay, we're a band. And what do people in bands do? They play instruments. They play instruments, exactly. So uh, it was time for them to figure out, well, who's going to play what instrument? When it was time to assign the instrument, semantics would be a major influencer of who played what. And, and the instrument that became the biggest point of contention were the drums. Mm. And they couldn't decide who would 
would be the drummer. Now, uh, Nesmith played guitar and bass, and Torque, like I said, could play multiple musical instruments. They were both familiar with the drums, but they refused to play them. Uh, Davy Jones also knew how to play the drums and tested well on the instrument. There was a problem, though, because Davy Jones was not the tallest guy, so they didn't want to have a, a short cast member behind a big drum set. Elevate them. Yeah, I mean, I guess on in live shows, but if there's going to be a camera, I don't know. Oh, okay. Three of the four down. Okay, we got three of the four. So Mickey Dolan's was the last one to get an instrument. Yeah, well, he he was he, well. They decided, okay, well, the three of us aren't going to do it, so you're going to do it. Mike Nesmith could play drums. Peter Tork could play drums. David Jones could play drums. Mickey Dolan's uh, was the only one who didn't know how to play drums at all. Great by any means Great. at all. Yeah, and the now other, he's the drummer. The other three, yeah, the other three were. Familiar with drums? Enough? You know, Davy Jones, you know, uh, due to his height, he tested well. But uh, that all didn't matter. But luckily, one of the be- one of his band members that knew how to play drums uh, taught him his first few beats, Peter Torque. So, you know, I really nice. like Peter. Yeah. You know, that was enough to get through filming the pilot. <laughs> so that was good. And I will say he was trained properly later on. And, you know, he was a, you know, he became a good drummer. So here we go. You ready to hear the band lineup? Yeah, I am. We got Davy Jones, singer, percussionist, quote, front man. Ah, because he's the cute British one. Yeah. Mickey Dolans, singer, drummer. Mike Nesmith, guitar. Peter Tork, bass. Now, a pilot was filmed in late 1965, featured four songs by Boyce and Hart. Uh, it was filmed on a budget of uh, pretty much nothing, yeah. but uh, they filmed it in San Diego and L.A., and uh, the band wore mostly their own clothes. Okay, cool. After filming was complete... Uh, the original making the band went off and waited to hear if the show was going to even get picked up or if the band would, in fact, stay together. Something that was at the beginning of its existence around this time was audience testing. Oh, yeah. Bring in a group of people, show them product, get their responses. Uh, like I said, another thing that's so common now, you know, has to have an origin, you know. So the pilot episode did not did not test well with audiences. The pilot went through different edits, but then in one of those edits, they were trying to make up extra time, and so they just decided to throw in some of the screen tests for the band, and doing that and showing like the band as themselves and just being goofy guys, the audience, like the test audiences liked that, and I think they were able to identify with the, act, like the band oh. members then. And so putting the screen tests in the pilot would then make audiences see them because they were essentially playing a heightened version of themselves with their names yes but you know the audiences weren't ever supposed to see a screen test so and they're goofy and charismatic yeah exactly and so i just feel like that blurred the lines showing the monkeys who they were helped apparently and nbc picked up the show in 1966 ordered two seasons of episodes two seasons right off the bat on the pickup and part of how well it tested but another reason of how why the show got the green light was because of one of the four demos that boyce and hart submitted well it would be the perfect theme song Okay, band formed. Check. Instruments assigned. Check. Pilot filmed and sold. Check. A new way to bank. Debit. Hi, I'm Ray Hebel. Oh, God. Um, now, look, okay, they had all these things. All they need to figure out was how to perform How to together. turn on the camera. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, they, they had to get that sweet, sweet chemistry, like Walter White says. It's a Breaking Bad reference. Oh. They got a rehearsal space. They rented instruments. Doc Severinsen can't give someone an extra trumpet? What the hell's going on over there? Then they started a crazy schedule of band rehearsal, improv classes, and filming. And I can only imagine what improv classes in 65 were like. All right, we need a location. Bomb shelter. <laughs> No, no, no. It can't be something we're performing in now. (laughs) (laughs) It would become clear in all this rehearsal time uh, that there wouldn't be much cohesion by the time the series would premiere. Now, cute and charming, the monkeys were. Convincing as a band, the monkeys were not. Yet. Yet. Okay. And just to make sure uh, the sound was there in time, uh, Don Kirshner, the producer, brought in studio session uh, musicians to play on the tracks. So it'll be their vo- it'll be the, their vocals, but different yeah, instrumentalists. Yeah, it'll be. Yeah, they'll they'll have the band play the songs, and they'll even do like a ver- like have the song like the, sing it. But then the monkeys will come in and uh, record the vocals oh, okay. over it and stuff. Okay. Sing but not play instruments. Kirshner also brought in producer Snuff Garrett, which is just what such is a his name? Snuff Garrett. It's a good uh, name. Yeah, he decided uh, that the lead singer would be Davy Jones. So Snuff's idea of uh, Davy Jones at the singer, it was not popular. Uh, Snuff's contract was then bought Snuff. out and uh, snuffed. Kirshner uh, let Mike Nesmith produce some songs as long as he didn't play on the songs. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Um, now, he got Peter Tork to play guitar on the songs, though, you know? So in the early days, you know, the monkeys were unorganized, but, you know, they at least let each other play on the song. Now, uh, Kirshner formed a whole new record company, Cold Gems Records. Jams or gems? Cold Gems. Like, uh, like a gemstone. Yeah, exactly. The sole purpose of Cold Gems was to distribute monkey songs. Who would write these songs, though? Who are we going to get? Now, Don would bring back Voice and Heart yeah. as musical directors, although Don was the music coordinator. But these guys are going to be doing Yeah, the work. exactly. It was mid-August 1966, constant rehearsals, tons of stuff, learning to gel. Now, it was still about a month before the show premiere, but it was time for the Monkees to be formally introduced. Now, it was time for their first single. They'd assigned band roles, so who's going to sing the lead on the first single? Not Davey. Nope, sorry. It was Mickey. Mickey Dolan's Last Train to Clarksville was released, and it was Is a, that them? Yeah. It was a huge smash. Take the last train to Clarksville and I'll meet you. It's a great song. So this was written for them mm-hmm. to sing. Mm-hmm. They're vocalizing, but they're not, they're still not playing instruments Mm-mm. at this point. Okay. Boyce and Hart wrote the song to emulate songs the Beatles were putting out at the time. Now, Paperback Writer, which had been number one on the U.S. chart. Paperback, paperback Writer. Curly Howard was a vocalist. Now, uh, Last Train also features the lyrics. I want to get this right. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. And these were direct response to the Beatles lyric and She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of the things I was talking about with the lyrics. Companion piece. (laughs) Yeah, companion piece. When they release Last Train to Clarksville, they start going on tour and stuff and audiences love them. So the big hit across the country. big hit across the country. People are starting to go. So when the TV show premieres, it's not like it's just some random guy. Oh, so they built them up. They introduced them. Yeah, because the uh, last train of Clarksville came out a little bit before. So they were familiar with that song that went to number one. Got it. Billboard said this of the single. 
all the excitement generated by the promotion campaign for the new group is justified by the debut disc loaded with exciting teen dance beat sounds. Wow, they liked it. Yeah. You know, who doesn't love teen dance beat sounds? I liked middle-aged dance beat sounds. No, I know that. Now, it peaked at number one. First song, number one, Billboard Hot 100, and it would be number six on the 1966 year-end chart. September 12th, 1966 was a day that changed the life of Circus Boy. Mickey Dolenz. Yeah, and he started his journey to Circus Man. September 12th, 1966, the Monkees premiered on NBC. Oh, I thought someone lost their virginity. No, I mean, I'm, I mean maybe, but uh, starring the Monkees. It was about a month before the debut of their album, The Monkees. The show is a huge hit. So around this time, uh, Kirshner then all of a sudden relieved Boyce and Hart as producers. And he said apparently that they were using studio time booked for Monkey songs to record tracks. Yeah, that, you know, that they were recording tracks for their own solo projects. And they fired them because of that? Yeah, but it has to do with Don Kirshner going, okay, well, the Monkey, the, the band is what is making the money. I'm sorry, Boyce and Hart. Yeah, you know, like it doesn't matter what the music is. Yeah, exactly. May I have your attention, please? You, Elaine May. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners, uh, but what could be more exciting than spring showers, green trees, and new flowers? How about new Patreon subscribers? Tell us more, my little Cinco de Mayo. Oh well. Let's do some spring cleaning of your wallets, folks. Head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. C-O-M. And search This Was A Thing, the podcast. I'm not going to spell that out for you, folks. And set a monthly donation, and even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. Get so many more episodes 26 at least but we're working our way to get a lot more for you folks just be ready get ready for audio overdrive that's right and the general public does not get those 26 episodes you you only get them hey hey for spring you know what i'm gonna do what i'm off to pick flowers now what can i join i don't know can you? May I join Mr. Schneider? Yeah, I just, I think you just should learn how to say it correctly, that's all. May. May I join? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but you probably don't. You're allergic to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this is actually really bad pollen season for me, so. Uh... Now I'm going to kind of pepper in some stuff about the TV show, but it'll lead back to the drama with the music. It's all... I love drama. And I love music. Welcome to the story of the monkeys. I'm Ray Hebel, and I'm with... Rob Schneider. Anyway, drama and the music and TV show, all simpatico. I love it. Tell me. Now, January 1967, second album released, and more of the monkeys. Now, that was the, uh, that was the album title, More of the Monkeys. That was called More of the more Monkeys. More of the Monkeys. Now, it ended up being just uh, songs recycled from the show, put in album form. Now, in, in, the, in the business, in the music business, people would call that a money grab. And uh, Mike and Peter found out that the album uh, was just the songs from the show. They were uh, not too pleased. Uh, they started to man demand creative control over their music. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Like, do you remember... The 21st day of September? Do you remember... No, like all in the family, like when Carol O'Connor 
would have fights with Norman Lear, the writer, and be like, oh, Archie wouldn't say that. Or like, Archie would do this. And it's like, you're not art, like the word, you are an actor saying someone else's words. So like, what do you need creative control for? This is where it gets starting to get interesting. 1967. These actors who could play music that auditioned for a TV show about a band started to go on tour. Fans loved them screaming they got all the adoration it was their faces on the albums it was them on the tv show so they started going well you know other actors don't go out on you know go and tour and have tons of fans scream and buy all these no, albums it's true it's not like dick van dyke's doing like live action yeah. with his show yeah 67 started off with a bang January 28th for not even out of the first month uh an issue of the Saturday Evening Post quoted Mike Nesmith, you know, just going off against the music creation, all the process, how everything gets done. This is a quote. You know how debilitating it is to sit up and have to duplicate someone else's records? Tell the world we don't record our own music. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is he complaining about? Because here's the thing. The only two members of the Monkees that are in a recording are Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones to do the, I guess maybe back backup for Mike Nesmith and Peter Tork, but they're not playing the instruments. So, so if I get, if I'm getting this right, he's saying I don't like going out there and playing someone else's yes, music. Yes, and yeah, and pretending it's mine. Yes. Okay. Tell the world we don't record our own music. Okay. Oh shit. Yeah. So like this illusion that people had that these were four best friends who created their mm-hmm. own band. They got picked up on television. Now the world yeah. is finding out. The world is starting to how manufactured re- this yeah, is. Exactly, they're okay. starting to go. Oh yeah, I guess it is. I Ooh, guess. that's disappointing. Band members talking crap doesn't necessarily do good things for that chemistry I was talking about. That is correct. It caused a rift not only between the band but also with Mr. Don Kirshner. He got fired. Don Kirshner got fired. Yeah, the one who guy, guy who put him together from who? By the network or well, by them? I mean, I think. I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing the network probably because the network probably said, "Oh, we got to keep these guys happy." Yeah. The band finally got to have creative control for the monk for their third album. They finally could become that quote real band that everyone was making fun of. Oh boy! The Monkees UK tour in 1967 showed that uh, well, you know, uh, the results of the British invasion going to invade Britain. The reciprocation wasn't very good. Now, now the front pages of a bunch of the UK ma- uh, newspapers and music magazines and stuff said that the, they didn't play their own instruments on the uh, the records or sing the backing vocals in the studio. But when they're performing live, they're playing. Their oh own yeah, instruments. They're, yeah, they're, exactly. Yes, but here's the thing: most people, in the grand scheme of people who are going to hear these songs. Most of them aren't going to go be able to see them on stage. Got it. So they go over to England. England is like, we're not happy. Yeah. We don't like you. So, you know, with all this controversy going around with the music for the band. Well, you know, there were some issues with the TV series, which was the initial idea what these four guys were going to be. A TV series about a band just kind of... This is this is taking turns. Ripping off the Beatles. Exactly. Now... During the show, one of the episodes, uh, episode 31, it closed with Bob Raffleson, producer, asking the group about, you know, about the, about the accusations that they didn't play their own instruments in concert. Mike Nesmith responded, I'm fixing to walk out of here in front of 15,000 people, man. If I don't play my own instrument, I'm in a lot of trouble. He said this on air? Yeah. All right. Guess what? 
all this crazy stuff happened, I told you that 67 was a big year. Yeah. Till November 67. Wow. In November 1967, you know, people were starting to have enough of this monkey business. They did not like them. And then their fourth album, which is just the title is now this is 67. This title is Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. This is 67. Yeah. <laughs> Probably November. Yeah, exactly. Now, in 95, they released this one, and uh, Mike Nesmith is quoted in the liner notes. The press went into a full-scale war against us, talking about how the monkeys are four guys who have no credits, no credibility whatsoever, and have been trying to trick us into believing that they're a rock band. Number one, not only was this the case, the reverse was true. Number two, for the press to report with genuine alarm the monkeys were not a real band, was Looney Tunes. Hey, listen, Circus Boy, come down. <laughs> you know, back in the 60s, boy bands were so popular and girls loved them too. And even back then, there was Tiger Beat. Ah, yes, Tiger Beat. 1969, Davy Jones, he said, I get so angry when musicians say... Oh, your music is so bad. Because it's not bad to the kids. These people who talk about doing their own thing are groups that go and play in the clubs that hold 50 people while we're playing to 10,000 kids. You know, it hurts me to think that anybody thinks we're phony because we're not. We're only doing what we think is our own thing. Are they allowing them to write their own music yeah, by well, this point? Yeah, well, they are. Oh. They're controlling the computer now. They're, they're uh. controlling the network. Well, not, not NBC, but you know what I and mean? And now it's fa falling apart. Yes, exactly. Now, the fifth album, this one, you know, since apparently, you know, Davy Jones was saying they're playing to kids, you know, kids grow up and you have to, you know, they have to learn about things. So this one was called The Birds, The Bees, and The Monkeys. Okay. But then this, by this point, it was, you know, everything was off. <laughs> Even a good title couldn't save the band. Now, it was also around this time uh, that the television series was canceled. Sorry, only two seasons, two Emmys, though. But what was big back then in the 60s that was a feasible way for band musicians to... A variety show? Exactly! Now, Rob, do you want to explain to her? Sure, variety show. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you don't know that, let's go listen to some of the other episodes. It's in every episode. Yeah, it's in every episode. They go to the network and they say, look, we've done good for you guys and this is what we want. So the network said, okay, we're just going to cancel it all. This was okay, though. The band took the TV cancellation with stride because they were already working on something a little bit bigger. I mean, obviously the monkeys uh, look good on a small screen. Now let's get Davy Jones' big balls on the big screen. Yeah! I don't know if he's known for having big balls, but... Anyway, the monkeys had a feature film, 1968. The movie... It's called head. What? Yeah, it's called head. But that was a very big, like, stoner term, drug term. Oh, okay. Like a head trip. I think of something else. Yeah, that, well, yeah. That movie, it, it didn't really, it, it failed. It was a miserable failure. But actually, you may be familiar with the person who was the screenwriter for it. Roger Ebert. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. But he was still just a B-movie actor at that point. So it was just like... That's fine. Get the this laughing guy, guy from... Little shop. Bring them in. The weekend that uh, Head's West Coast premiere happened, which is just funny to think about that happening, and now it's just like, eh, go on YouTube. The band got together to work on a television special called 33 and a Third Revolutions Per Monkey. Uh, okay. And uh, apparently that made Peter Tork leave the band, because <laughs> he was like, I am out of here. But, you know, the three remaining members stuck it out for another couple of albums, but those didn't do anything. So it was kind of uh, time to break it up, and... 
you know, at the end of 1969, Mike Nesmith was like, I got some knitting to do. And he left. Of course, there was still Davey and Mickey, which sounds like a really cool kids band. Um, now they recorded one last album, but the two man version just, you know, it just wasn't good. It didn't have the same, you know, pop that, uh, I don't know, songs written by professional songwriters have. So it seemed like it was time to stop monkeying around. I think it was a long time ago that they could have stopped. I have, I have some very strong feelings about everything that I'm hearing. Obviously, these four men had lives afterwards. Some would say these monkeys evolved. Now, Peter Tork got into uh, designing parts for automobiles. Are you joking or no? <laughs> Just kidding. I believed it. I was that's like, called oh, that's called a callback. No, no. But Peter, I was in a band, lost that band. I'm going to do another band. Called it Release. <laughs> One thing they weren't ever able to do, release an album. Uh, cause they broke up. So yeah, no good with that. You know, he didn't have a very good time the rest of the seventies, but Hey, after that trajectory up, you know, he got, got out of the music industry. He went, he got a job teaching high school math, love it, music, coaching baseball. But then Peter got fired and, uh, he was also, uh, drinking really bad into the early eighties. Okay. Now, Mike, like Mike, the one thing about Mike that we know, he does his own Thanks. So he's been a rebel. He, exactly. He was the one who kind of started, you know, but it was time that he started doing things the way he wanted to do them on his terms. There's a Vandy Fair article that was really great. Quote, he's the godfather of the MTV era, having pioneered the modern music video genre. His Elephant Parts, a collection of comedy and musical videos, won the very first Grammy for Video of the Year in 1982. He was also an executive producer of the 1984 punk comedy Repo Man, which Vanity Fair says is, quote, one of the best American movies of the Reagan era. Now, I'm not familiar with this, but... Repo Man? Yeah, I'd never heard of it, but then when I saw Vanity Fair said that, I was, I was like, oh, so I guess it has... Some it is a thing, okay. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, on season three. But here's the thing. Yeah, he did all that stuff, music videos, Repo Man, doing repossession. But, you know, Mike did his own thing in ways outside of the entertainment industry, outside of music, outside of acting. You see, Mike ended up making a fairly powerful enemy, a governmental body. IRS. Very good, Robert. Mr. Nesmith decided he just wasn't going to pay his taxes. That's right. Not only was he ex had exposure as in the monkeys, but he also had an inheritance that had a ton of money. So I'm sure people are paying attention to him. Now, he wrote a memoir in 2017, he wrote that the dissolution of the monkeys was followed almost immediately by the IRS. Quote, they showed up with a huge bill for unpaid taxes and started seizing property, he wrote. So after, uh, after you know, big rise to fame, it's pretty much left with nothing to show for it. Because he chose not to pay taxes. Yeah, because he chose not to pay taxes. Yeah, okay. you know, something that... You and I. Free. Everyone has yeah, to pay exactly. taxes. I mean, it's, you know, what, what is it? Death taxes is inevitable. What is yeah, it? death and taxes. taxes. Yeah, well, I say death taxes and Disney raising their prices are the three inevitabilities. Oh, you're going to get political? Not only was all of this going on, but he also had his marriage collapse. It was in a not the best way because he had an affair but his mistress was his wife's best friend. Oh, that! Oh, this guy's an asshole. Yeah. Well, now, maybe not best friend, but. He couldn't look anywhere else? So, you know. Peter, Mike, I think they monkeyed around a little too much. Oh, wait, who else is there? How did the other guys do? We got Mickey. How's he doing? He, I mean, he did he did stuff, but you know, it was not as much. I think it was just he lived a more low key life. But it was just the for a while, you know, he was still going out for auditions and stuff. But at the auditions, it was hey, 
you're in the monkeys. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, he'd get to do some voice acting. Love voice acting. Scooby Doo, Captain Caveman. You know, Mike and Peter, you know, it took a while. You know, they didn't have a good. But, you know, Mickey already kind of he figured it out. By 76, he was going to the UK to star in a musical. And it was going to be, okay, I'm going to be there for three months. And uh, that turned into 12 years. Wow. And he stayed in uh, London as a director and producer. The show that brought him there uh, was from 77 to 78. was called The Point. I don't know that. Now, let's get to the fourth member, the cute one, the Tony nomination, the one who wasn't paying attention to popular music at the time of the 60s. Mr. Davy Jones. Davy Jones. Now, Davy signed a record deal with Bell Records. Uh, Let's be honest. Bell Records was popping at that time because uh, they were putting out all that sweet, sweet Partridge Family vinyl. But, you know, he keep, you know, he put out albums appear on TV. I don't know if you know one of the shows that he appeared on. Uh, Fantasy Island. Brady Bunch. He Brady sang Bunch. the song Girl on Brady Bunch. Thank you, girl, for making the morning brighter, girl, for making the nighttime nicer, girl. But it seems like he had fairly the most low-key life. Like a Mickey Dolan's, I guess. I mean, he had to move across the Atlantic. I mean, that's got to be stressful for anyone. I have some thoughts on on this on these on this group. Okay. Well, I'm getting towards the end because I'll look, wait. Well, here's the thing. They, you know, they, all everything broke. Everyone broke up. You know, they were still doing their own things or whatever. But then something happened. A new thing that would be on television called cable and. At the time, cable channels had 24 hours of airtime to fill. Yes. Maybe, you know, the nighttime they had for, but they had to fill it. So they were just looking for anything. And, you know, okay, well, if it could fit within the realm of the channel, great. So MTV picked up the monkeys, started playing it. That generation started getting into the monkeys. You know, I feel like actually maybe the 80s was one of the first times that like nostalgia was like actually celebrated yeah yeah the seven the 70s on broadway in oh, terms yeah, of musicals but but like what you're saying yeah. on like the on the grand scheme where it's not just like a novelty yeah, it's not just like oh i remember this as a kid it was like oh this is actually good you no know, it's you're absolutely right it's the 80s it's things like nick at night that really launched a lot oh, of yeah. nostalgia so that happened and then all of a sudden wait what year is it oh it's 1986 oh Oh my God, 20 years ago. We started wow. 20 years ago. Oh my God. Wow. Now, so they were like, okay, cool. Let's do it. Let's make money from, we're popular again. They went on it. It was a huge hit. I think bigger than anyone was expecting for the Monkees tour to be. Even popular with critics and audiences and stuff. So critics. But the thing is, is that at this time, only three of the Monkees were back. Mickey, Davey, Petey. Where's the other one? Mike. We'll get into that. Now, by the 90s, they were all back to doing their own things. But then in 96. Now we're at the 30 year mark. 10 years after 86. Oh. And it's the 30th. You're right. Good oh, job. Oh, good. Thanks. 96 was also a, subsequently around the time where I did discover them. Yes. So I was discovering them when there was, quote, new monkeys thing. You know what I mean? So it was like, I got all, you know, I got, a, like I said, the monkeys box set and stuff. So it was just like, oh my God. So I think that helped move my thing into it because it was like 
oh, look, it's presented to me, you know, before the internet. So they knew the 30th was coming and they got together like, okay, we should do something. And apparently over time, maybe with age, they they got musical chemistry. Wow. (laughs) It it all worked. Only took 30 years. Yeah, exactly. And then they recorded another album. In 1996, they released Just Us. I think it's supposed to be like Justice. Just Just Us. Just Us, one word. First Monkeys record written and produced entirely by just the four of them. Wow. But then they were like, should we tour again? And then that, you could go, you can go in the studio and you're done. See you guys tomorrow. I don't think you really get that on a tour. And so, you know, they, they started having the same differences, the same, you know, the, the, the dislikes of each other, or they don't like, you know, oh, I don't like that thing about it. Oh, I don't like this. And by this time, Nesmith actually came back for the 30th, but he dropped out early on. But then after all that, that tour ends. They don't, you know, it was just, you know, random things. They go home. Then in 2001, it would have been 35th. You know what we should try? We should try going to her. No, no, no. Do you remember Mean Girls? Yeah. Where she's like, stop trying to make Fetch happen. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like, stop trying to make the monkeys yeah. happen. But then that, but then Peter left. Peter was like, I don't want to do this. I got a math final give. Then all of a sudden, Mickey and Davy started to have some issues. And in 2009, Davy Jones, Davy Jones said, quote, couldn't imagine sharing a stage with Mickey Dolans ever again. Wow. Meanwhile, things weren't going the best for Mike Nesmith either. Because in 2010, his wife left him. Now, I don't know if this is the mistress. That left him. I- irony. On top of all this, he actually started to go blind. Oh, no. Uh, this is from his 2017 memoir, Infinite Tuesday, an autobiographical riff. Quote, I lost my sight to cataracts. And at the same time, I lo- uh, same time lost my flexibility to an undiagnosed condition that crippled me, making it difficult and painful to walk. I was essentially helpless, a captive in my home. Blindness ended up being reversible with cataract Good. surgery. But that strange illness that made it hard for him to move uh no one knew what it was it's they couldn't figure it out it did have a bright ending though because all this it, mysteriously it just went away it got better okay. i don't know just the human body obviously is just oh yeah a, a fucking crazy thing yeah. but here's the thing 2011 got back together why would stop it went on tour oh my god 45th anniversary tour even though the shows went well touring in the summer <laughs> in North America can be grueling for anyone. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) So they're like, okay, look, I think it's time for the monkeys to be done. They decided that it was just time to shut shop in the monkey shop. Until what? Well, actually, it was until something sad because then they could never really get together. Oh no, uh, one of them died? The next year in 2012. Which one died? Davy Jones. He died? Yeah. I didn't know he was dead. Then in February 2019... Peter Tork died uh, to a rare form of head and neck cancer, and he'd been battling it for a decade. And then on December 10th, 2021, Mike Nesmith passed away. Only one monkey left. As of this recording. Yeah. Mickey Dolans, at the memorial, he said of Mike Nesmith, he was a dear friend and partner. That's what I'll say about you. Thank you so much. What would you say about me? Oh, geez. I mean, I was going to try and think of a do of a bit, but 
that you got a cock that doesn't stop. That's how I want to be remembered. Like, I need to get you a big headstone. <laughs> yeah, that makes it's sense. It's a mushroom tip headstone. <laughs> so before I get into closing, there's just something that I have to talk about. And I didn't want to put it in the 1967 section because, well, that was already packed. But let's go back to 1967. Got my time machine. It's been said that in the year 1967 that the monkeys sold more albums than the Beatles. Okay. Now, it's been reported as fact numerous times over the years. Multiple trusted sources, but it was actually all probably bullshit. Now, Mike Nesmith, in his autobiography, Infinite Tuesday, uh, the monkeys were in Australia. It was November 1977. He was being interviewed. Quote, as we sat down for the interview, before he asked the first question, I told him I was going to lie to him. He was taken aback, then seemed a little nonplussed and asked why. I said it was because I didn't trust the press, and I didn't expect him to tell the truth, so neither would I. I said that some things I would say would be true and some false, and it was up to him to figure out which was which. According to the normal standards of journalistic responsibility, he asked how he would tell the difference between when I was lying and telling the truth, and I said, you won't. That's the point of the lie. He continues, then came a point when he asked me about the sales of monkey records, and I saw the chance. It isn't too well known. I said flatly that over 35 million records in, uh, were sold in 1967, more than the Beatles and Rolling Stones combined. He diligently wrote all this down, and I wonder for a moment if I had chosen too outrageous lie to tell. It turned out to be just right. The next day in the paper, there it was, printed as fact. So he just lied, and now it's fact. Yeah, and, you know, I guess it's one of those things where it's like, well, check your sources, and it's like, my source was a guy in the band. My source was the band. Yeah. Nesmith would go on to call the story a, quote, complete fabrication, totally bogus, class A mendacity lie. That's a pretty big lie. Like, that's a pretty big lie. And for it to, it, from 1977 until two, yeah. I mean, you know what I yes, mean? Like, yes. it, that's a big lie. And it, like, when I read that, that was like, it took me aback that it was just such bullshit. Even now, like rereading it, like, it makes me feel like I need to take a break. We'll be right back. <laughs> this was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Coming soon from Fred Silverman Records, it's Monkeys. An album played entirely by members of the Simeon family. And for you non-science folks, the album is played entirely by monkeys. That's right. These monkeys have been brought in from a neighborhood near Santa Fe, New Mexico, and these fellas, and one gal, know how to play instruments. Can you believe it? Still don't believe it, huh? I'm sure you've heard that one song, Daydream Believer. Well, how about Banana Eater? It's like Daydream Believer, but the lyrics have been changed to be more suited for these monkeys. And of course, you can't have a monkeys album. And for legal reasons, I need to clarify, this is monkeys playing music, not the group, the monkeys. These are wild animals who have been domesticated and also trained on how to play instruments. But you can't have the album without a theme. And as a special treat, we brought in the monkey that played peekaboo with Jack Parr to play it. And guess what? He took up the bass. And guess what the only song he knows how to play is? The theme of It's Monkeys. Hey, hey, it's monkeys. 
And just when you thought it couldn't get any better... Ah. Uh. Anyone else see that monkey just roaming around? <laughs> Wait, are they still here? Yeah, we can't get a hold of the guy who's supposed to take him back to Santa Fe. They're, they're harmless, just hungry. Ah, <laughs> uh, looks like he's just going to craft services, I guess. And, uh, now, now there are three monkeys. Oh, there's a fourth. Well, technically, on premises, there's nine. Uh, we brought an extra after the Herman's Hermit crab fiasco. We're not gonna let that happen again. I, I don't think I heard about that. Wait, what's in his hand? Is that... Is that a pirate gun? Oh, yeah. I had to bring my antique weapon collection to the office today because the cleaning woman is coming to the house. <laughs> not my decision. And not to make you sound like a dummy, but the one holding the pirate gun is the gal. <laughs> I call her Petunia because she was eating petunias when she was first brought in. Does that one have a... Oh, yeah, yep. Looks like you got a mace in your collection there. Oh, yeah, that's from a guy I know in Luxembourg. Actually, are you in the market for a mace? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much. Oh, I, I don't think I have room for a mace. You see, I, I just keep a, uh, a golf club in my trunk. You know, I, I assumed you recorded this weeks ago. We did. And the monkeys are still around. Like I said, we still can't get a hold of the guys who's supposed to pick them up. <laughs> who knew monkey wranglers were so shifty? I'll be honest, I saw the poo when I walked in, but considering this is the 1960s and we're in a recording studio, <laughs> we've seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we... Whoa. Cheeky, how'd you get that guillotine in here? Wait, 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 no. Thank you. This was a sketch. Now, to close out, what do you think, Rob? Do you think the monkeys were a real band? Yes, I do. I mean, if anyone gets together as a collective to make music, yes, that's a band, right? Well. Did they play the instruments in live concert yeah, in settings? in live concert, yes. It's a band. Yeah. It's a band. It's a, are, are there bands who don't write their own music? Absolutely. Are there bands who don't orchestrate their own music? Absolutely. So to me, I think they're a band. I think what's kind of bizarre to me is to me, this feels like if the cast of Friday Night's Lights was like, we're going to play yeah. football. To me, it has that sort of arrogance to it. No, yeah. Which is like, this was a television project in which you were playing musicians. So when all of the bonuses of, well, we're going to have an album and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, your actors, like, what the hell's the problem? It's almost like you see on like, nowadays on like social media, oh man, that person seems like a really fun, funny person. Yeah. Oh, I bet that person's a fun, funny person. And then it just comes out like, oh, that person's a fucking asshole. Yeah, or like course. the monkeys, it was like the TV show. It's like, oh my God, these guys are so funny, cute. Oh my God, I bet these guys are a great time to have around. I, you know, had they been given good music, I, mean, I think that was the thing, which is like, hey guys, you play songwriters. You're not, you are not songwriters. Yeah. And I think had they been like, okay, well, we'll stick to the professionals, they probably could have had a longer run on the TV series. And it parlayed themselves into larger careers. But here's the thing, though. If by after the second season, they're already going, we're going to change the format because that's what we want to do. No, no, no. No, that's what I mean. Like, get rid of them at that point. What I'm saying is, is like, if they were just like, hey, we're four actors and we're adhering to, you know, what the writing is and all that stuff, like the, what songs you're giving us, I think it would have been fine. And then I think there's a, to me, there's a sadness of the consistent trying to get it together and nobody likes each other and the songs aren't that good except the ones that were written by other people. I don't know. There's just a sadness to this whole thing. You know, it would have been interesting 
maybe if they had all survived and if they were game for it, if they had done like either not a reality show, but some sort of reboot no, yeah. of it. I don't know. So for me, I'm kind of uh, the songs are good that are not written by them. Their voices are fine. But like, guys, you're actors. Like you were actors yeah, that oh, were yeah. hired. It's like Girls 5 Eva if they were like, oh, well, we're writing our own. We're doing this and we're doing it's like. No, you were hired to to play singers. You were po- hired to be part of a band. And they should have, I'm sorry, I feel like don't shit where you eat. One issue, though, is Peter Tork and Mike Nesmith were musicians who went into audition. So they had musicians. Were Davy Jones and P- uh, Mickey yeah. Dole? I don't know. I feel like if if there if there would have been two non-naysayers, then maybe it could have been. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, sure. So I don't but know. But guys, you know the gig. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, my, like I said, my feeling is, is that this got out of control. I mean, that's, I think, yeah. I mean, I think tons of bands go out and play other people's written songs. But also, I think the people probably that were saying, oh, you know, they're not musicians, are critics and snobby, pretentious musicians who actually have sway and influence over people. But the one thing I think that is so interesting about all of this is I think it's one of the first times you're seeing music as a visual Mm -hmm. medium oh yeah which is what do they look like together and he's short we can't put him on the drums outside of like an ed sullivan yes and so it's not just a stagnant stage performance yeah or oh look at it's 1965 when we can put cool colors in the background oh absolutely and like yes the use of editing the use of getting to know the musician all of that stuff is still with us today but you have to admit there's lots of record producers right now and album labels that do this same thing, which is they put together people. This probably showed them, oh, look it, we can we can make money off of of musicians and we aren't doing jack shit except for putting it all together, which I mean is more than jack shit. And then I think I'm sure we'll cover MTV at some point yeah. on this show. But like what you see with MTV is the idea of what is the visual storytelling and sometimes that taking precedence over the music. And I think that's what we've got here, which is, do they look like musicians? But there's a difference between looking like a musician and being a musician. And it seems like the four of them kind of got that line a little blurred. Yeah, it's... Not to say that they're not talented. Here's the thing. I wonder what would have happened if... Yeah, it shows shows a success. Yeah, okay, they're selling records. As opposed to monkey mania. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if it was just like... Oh, we got another pickup. Cool. Okay, cool. I mean, they bit the hand that fed them. Oh, absolutely. All all they had to do, I mean, honestly, what I also think would have been interesting is because the Beatles themselves were changing so much in this period, because like you said, they're getting into the transcendental stuff. Well, and and their clothes were just getting sweaty. And their clothes were getting sweaty. It would have been fun. I mean, the monkeys, I'm sure, could have parodied that. Yeah. And had, and literally gone on a parallel journey. And then as the Beatles dissolved, they could have dissolved. I don't know. I think there was a lot of potential there that they probably just, because I think they probably thought they were better oh, absolutely. and smarter than the producers, which is not always the case. The producer was the one who came up with the idea to put you all together in the first place. I honestly did not. I thought at first, until you started talking to me about this, I honestly thought they were a rock group yeah. that they, got picked up. That got picked up because they paralleled. The but, Beatles. And, but, and that was the original plan was getting the loving spoonful, but they couldn't get those guys. So like, I, you know what? It's, I think the loving spoonful is the only band in America. What about Richie Valens? Oh boy. So no, I, so, so I, I find this all very fascinating because this is really the beginnings of the visual, I think, impacting of what music can be. And you took the words out of my mouth. Thank you. I'm sorry. Do no, I'm back? just kidding. Not really. But I will. Yeah. I mean, it's the argument 
Are the monkeys a real band? It's dying down nowadays, but I feel like it'll always be people saying yes, always people saying no. But what's interesting to me is that something that people are always saying yes about is, is Mark Schroeder the greatest game coordinator ever? Let's find out. Yes. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a This Was a Quiz. Yeah. With Mark Schroeder. Were you a big fan of 60s pop rock music, You Mark? know it. I was there, baby, with my mop top and my shoes and my stuff what? from the 60s. Uh, no, I, it was catchy, but I, I, I like that they were just a musical act that was created specifically for, like, media. <laughs> and that was pretty funny. It's, but I feel, like, I feel like it was, they were... Like a computer program that got self-aware. Yes. Because they were put together and then they started wanting to like control the music and oh, stuff. 100%. So I feel like it's like, it's, oh no, they, the they can create their own thoughts. To life. Oh no, they don't like think this. that they're a thing. Um, but it's funny that they get luxuries that most fake bands did. Like most bands created for media, they don't get to go on tour, perform music. They just exist within a movie or a TV show and then they're done when it's over. And we're going to learn a little bit more about these fake musical acts okay. oh. in a little game called film and tv bands you guys are competing against each other head to head so you gotta be the first to answer correctly Uh, what jim that's it that's the answer that cartoon that one gal singer remember that jim it's the gem and jim and the hologram jim and the hologram i thought you said jim which is (laughs) i thought you said jim too and i was like who's jim who's this guy i'm rob this is mark so all i'm gonna do is i'm gonna name a fictional band or a music act from a movie or a tv show and you guys are competing against each other somebody's got to be the first to name the name of the film or TV show. Okay. Okay. okay so I'll give you the fictional band, you name the show or, mo- or movie. Jesse and the Rippers. Jesse and the Rippers house. is Full House, yeah. It is Full House, yes, that is correct. The Wonders. Well, that, that thing you do, also yeah. known as the O-Neaters. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Is that really what it's called? Yeah, well, because they wanted to be the Wonders, and then when the guy reads it on stage, he goes, the O-Neaters. And so they change it to Wonders, like regular. That's true. You doing that thing. Yeah, I sing it in dude. fourth grade talent show. Number three, Zack Attack. Saved by the Bell. Yes, that is correct. Number four, Sexual Chocolate. Oh, Jesus. Uh, 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 oh, oh. The Office? Martin. No, Coming to America. Coming, coming to, to America. America. America, Sexual Chocolate. Timmy and the Lords of the Underworld. Uh, South Park. That is correct. Marvin Berry and the Starlighters. That is, is Back to the Future. Yeah, Back to the Future. That's yeah. correct. The Soggy Bottom Boys. SpongeBob. Soggy Bottom Boys is from uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That is correct. Stillwater. Stillwater is almost famous. Yes. Wild Stallions. Wild Stallion, Bill and Ted. Uh, um. Barry Jive and the Uptown Five, formerly Kathleen Turner Overdrive and Sonic Death Monkey. Uh, is that from uh, uh, School of Rock? Very close, but no. Wedding Singer. No, that is High Fidelity. Oh. High Fidelity, Jack Fidelity, Black. But five for Ray, three for Rob. Shit. Very good outing for Woo. both of you. You did great, right? Uh, yeah, that was very. That was great. That was really. Josie really and the Pussycats. Gem and the Holograms. Uh, what, what was the name of Andy Bernard's group on The Office? I don't know, Rob. The <laughs> <laughs> is that what you want to hear, man? I don't know. Okay. Are you happy? Egg on my face. You just have to let me. You can't let me have this fucking win. I'm a fucking idiot, <laughs> I guess. Well, if you want to find us, go to Instagram. Why would you look this for This was us? a I thing pod. 
www.thiswasathing.com or patreon.com slash thiswasathing. Old Lucy level $5 a month gets you tons and tons of exclusive content. And you get to see Rob just telling me how stupid I am all the time. Oh, hey, hey, on today's special episode, Patreon exclusive, we look how big of a fucking idiot Ray is. Oh, oh, Ray, what do you think of how big of an idiot you are, huh? Anyway, thanks for listening, folks. You guys got to listen to this podcast. About two-thirds of the way through season two, it fucking comes <laughs> off the <laughs> rails. It's crazy. <laughs> no one knows what Why happened. did they finish? They actively hated each other. Why did they continue the episode? Because you have to. <laughs> Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was a Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was a Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was a Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 